Yeah, I, uh, I can say I'm officially old, but not as old as John. And so that's, that's always a blessing. <laughs> you know, we had a great night last night. There was a party. A bunch of us turned 50 this year, including my wife, who turned 50 uh, way before I did uh, in August. And, uh, and then there was a few others uh, there. And I want to thank everyone that was there and uh, Candy for putting it all together. It was great. All of us. It was really a fun time and, and uh, really am blessed to be a part of such a great family of believers and of people. So thank you for that. So welcome to See Me Church. Our mission is to love and uh, both God and people. And today we are officially concluding the series, Jesus Worth Following. I looked back at it and we started it in January. Uh, what is that? Uh, what are we in? 18th January. 2016. So it's been two years and nine months that we have been investing in the gospel of Mark. Not every Sunday, but we've just stayed on that theme. And I, I don't know about you, but I hope you were as fed by it as I was, because uh, just parking on something for that long really has an impact on you because it becomes alive. It just starts to wake you up. And, and it's something I think we miss in our, let me get something quick and move on society. And so it really ministered to me to just stay on the theme and stay with the, the teaching and learn the story and understand the book and the context and all of that stuff. And I got to say, as I shared before, there were moments where I was brought to tears and that, you know, I haven't had that experience in my own personal quiet time in a long time where I just broke into tears or I was just so excited or moved by something that I read. And I really believe it's because of the cumulative effect of studying something consistently for a lengthy period of time. As you can tell, we're not going to follow our typical format. Instead of uh, starting off with some worship and then taking communion and then having the message, we've actually mixed it all up. Uh, we're going to start off with the message, then we're going to take communion, and we're going to go old school and actually pass the trays. Don't want to freak anybody out, but we're going to pass the trays. <laughs> And then afterwards, we're going to end with a different kind of worship, and I'll talk more about that later. Amen. So the last time I spoke, we talked about how following Jesus isn't easy, that, that it requires some effort. It, it can be challenging. Well, today I want to talk about inspiration. So there was this husband and wife, uh, good people. They were married, wife, very godly woman. But the husband, he tended to be chauvinistic. And so one morning they were getting breakfast ready and his wife said to him, honey, why is it that I always have to make the coffee? And of course, the chauvinistic husband said, well, because you're the woman and that's the woman's job. And she said, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. As a matter of fact, I think the Bible actually says that the man is responsible for making the coffee. Well, he was taken aback. He's like, no, I don't believe that. How dare you? You're going to have to prove that to me in the Bible. So if you have a Bible on you, I want you to open up your Bibles. Take out your apps. Open up your app or your regular Bible, whatever you have. I want you to go to the table of contents of the New Testament. And we're going to read the table of contents. And this is what the wife did with her husband. Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. There it is. The Bible says the man brews the coffee. You know, not everything in the Bible, or things don't always have to be in the Bible to be inspired. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for our time to look into your word. Inspire us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now, as I mentioned before, it's okay, the screen's blank for a reason. Uh, as I mentioned last week, the book of Mark ends with some controversy. Now, if you open your Bibles that you have out already and you go to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, you'll probably notice that in between verse 8 and 9, 
there's a little footnote there, and it says something to the effect of these verses do not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is troubling to some people because it causes them to question the reliability of the Bible. I mean, after all, if this passage is in question, what about other passages? In other words, can the Bible be trusted? Well, let me reassure you that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. The Bible can be trusted. As a matter of fact, of all the passages in the Bible, and there's a lot, the Bible's a fairly big book, very few have any kind of controversy or question about them whatsoever. And even the ones that have any kind of question about them, none of the questions would change any of the content of the book or of that particular letter. And so we don't have to worry about some sort of unknown teaching or wrong error or some teaching like that because the Bible's been pretty tested and approved ever since the first century, 2,000 years ago, and even longer if you consider the Old Testament, people have been trying to find fault with God's Word. They've been in, you know, in, uh, testing it, and it keeps getting approved again and again and again to the point where we just have minuscule. We're down to the minutia of questions about various passages and texts like Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. So don't be troubled. The Bible can be trusted. So what is it with these verses? Why is there a footnote here in the Gospel of Mark about these verses? Well, I want you to hear the arguments. We're going to start with the argument against including Mark 16, 9 through 20 in our Bibles. Number one. The two oldest existing Greek manuscripts dated to about 325 AD and about 340 AD do not contain the section and neither do about 100 other ancient manuscripts in different languages. This is significant because 325 and 340 AD is pretty close to the first century. The Gospel of Mark was written somewhere during the first century, sort of in the middle. And so, you know, the older the documents we have, the older copies we have, that are closer in age to the original, we tend to trust more. And this is pretty compelling evidence since these verses don't exist, exist in the oldest existing manuscripts that we have. Number two, other ancient manuscripts put asterisks next to Mark 18, Mark 16 verses 19 through 20 to indicate that it may be an addition, it may be an addition to the original text. In other words, the theory is, is that some scribe along the way added the, this ending because he didn't like how the book ended. Number three, according to the other writings, almost all of the Greek manuscripts known to Eusebius, who died around 339 AD, and Jerome, who died around 419 AD, do not have these verses. So these are two famous Christian leaders in the church, and, and they did not recognize that these verses existed in their Bible. Number four, in some of these manuscripts, the endings are different. There's actually two different endings to the Gospel of Mark, the long version, which, we, which we're going to be looking at, and then a short version, which is basically a short version of the long version. So that causes question for people. Number five, about one-third of the vocabulary is different from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, not to mention that there's this awkward transition between verse 8 and verse 9. And so the feel of the text seems unusual. It sounds like someone else wrote it. And then lastly, most contemporary scholars today reject these verses. They don't consider them written by Mark. Now, I'm not saying they don't necessarily consider them inspired by God. They just don't necessarily consider them part of the gospel of Mark. Now, if we were to stop here, we would be like, oh, rip that page out. That doesn't belong in the Bible. But there's another side to this story. There's more data. So let's look at arguments in, for including Mark. You guys came to church, didn't realize you're going to get a little lecture. Don't worry, the lecture's going to be brief. We're going to get into the text in a minute. Number one, many early Christian writers refer to these passages in their writings. This is going to blow your mind. Papias, who lived at 100 AD, he was alive in the lifetime of some of the apostles. In one of his works, he specifically quotes verse 18 out of Mark chapter uh, 16, verses 9 through 20. Justin Martyr 
lived about 151 AD, he actually quotes Mark 16, verse 20 in his first apology, one of his writings. Arrhenius, who lived in 180 AD, in his work against heresies, quoted Mark 16, verse 13. Hippolytus, in his work Peri Charismaton in 2010 AD, quoted verses 8 and 19. Vicentus, Bishop of Thabari, quoted two of the verses while speaking at the Seventh Council of Carthage in 256 AD. The apocryphal, that means uh, they don't consider it a uh, Bible. The apocryphal Acts of Pilate was written about 200 AD, contains verses 15 through 18. In fact, an overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts do include these passages indicating that the early Christians knew about it and accepted it as genuine. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I appreciate that in our effort to know the truth, we put it in there so we can be aware of it, but we do note that there's some question. Now, does this cause you to be troubled about the accuracy of your Bible? No, the fact that we do things like that, footnotes and commentaries, only strengthens the quality uh, and trustworthiness of the Bible. So do we need to be troubled? I don't think so. For one, it seems unusual that Mark would end his gospel with the women trembling and in fear. It, It just seems a weird place to end. Did he write something else and that got lost? I don't know. Did someone know of what he wrote, and then they kind of paraphrased it and put it in because they knew the actual ending, but it got lost, and so they, I don't know. I mean, there's a bazillion different theories. We don't know, but it does seem unusual that he would end his gospel at verse 8. There's historical evidence for the, as I just said, for the inclusion of these verses. It was considered by many in the early church to be authentic. And finally, whatever the story is about verses 9 through 20, the message is just as inspired as the rest of the gospel of Mark. The meaning is consistent with God's word. So in my opinion, I think we should give it a chance. Just like God gave some of us oddballs a chance, I think we should give Mark verses 9 through 20 a chance. So let's jump into the text. Verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus resurrects. Remember, he who was crucified is now risen. He resurrects on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Now, if we look at all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we compare all of the resurrection appearances, we get the following timeline of Jesus's resurrection appearances. Not all of them are mentioned here. Remember, I'm, I'm taking all the gospels and I'm kind of creating a timeline. So we know on the first day of the week, very early, Mary, we learned this last week, Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene and Mary Salome all went to the tomb to finish the burial process of Jesus. But when they got there, they found the tomb empty and there was an angel sitting there who told them, he's risen, go tell the others, meaning the 12 disciples or apostles, Jesus's close ministry people. So apparently it seems that the women left in fear and trembling, but along the way they got separated. Now, I don't exactly know where they were going. I personally think they were going back to Bethany. I haven't confirmed that. But remember, Jesus tended to stay with his disciples in Bethany, small town just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles away. And and my guess is that's probably where they were staying when Jesus got arrested and all that happened, because that's where Jesus was staying when he got arrested. And so they came from there early in the morning, and now they're heading back over there to tell everybody what happened. Well, along the way... Mary Magdalene gets separated from the other two Marys. And Mary Magdalene happens to find Peter and John first. And she tells them what happened, and Peter and John run back 
I think from Bethany to the tomb to, to investigate. They get there. They realize he's not there. They don't know what to do. John's starting to think maybe he resurrected. Peter's not sure. And Mary tagged along. She ran back with them. Mary Magdalene returned with Peter and John. But being a woman, probably, she was a little slower. They were a little fresher. She had already made the journey once, and she's making it a second time. And so she kind of arrives late after Peter and John leave. And so she's sitting there at the tomb weeping, and suddenly standing behind her is Jesus. The first appearance after the resurrection. He tells her, go tell the others. So she leaves again. Now, the other two women who saw the angel, apparently Jesus appeared to them too as they were on their way to find the other disciples too. That's in one of the other gospels. And he appears to those two women. And then it wasn't until that evening... Oh, I'm sorry. And so those two women go and they go tell the disciples. And now there's three women who are all telling the disciples he's risen. We've seen him. And guess what? Nobody believes them. So let me ask you this question. And, and feel free to feedback. Why do you think Jesus appeared to the women first? They like to gossip. They like to gossip. <laughs> wow. You know, the, uh, the story of my chauvinistic husband is actually a true story. And he's in the room right now. Women like to talk. Smart. Good place to start. Where, who, what else? What other? Yeah. I figured they were better they're better communicators. <laughs> Carlos, way to save the day, brother. <laughs> they kept track of the details. <laughs> Dean. It's illogical, you said? I like that. Illogical wisdom. Yeah, that's unexpected that the women would be the ones that he would appear to. And that, in some ways, makes the story believable or, or more, you know, you got to go, well, they wouldn't lie about that, right? Because that would seem odd. Yes, way in the corner. Kiana. You're really good at convincing people. I'm convinced. He wanted to give them credibility. I was actually going to share kind of the opposite. You shared about last week how women back in that time were treated really differently and were not given credibility. And so it's almost like the scripture where God chooses the foolish things to, to shame the wise. God chooses the foolish. Like he, that was why that happened. Yeah, the fact that in the society women weren't considered credible, it really highlights the, the credibility of the story. Yes. The least should be first, the weak will be strong. Yeah, I mean, it's just, just consistent. Yes? They were there. They were there. They were there. They were there. That's right. Someone help. Yeah? Um, it was probably easier for a woman to be arrested for saying something that was controversial than a man. So, but it was speaking out. It would, uh, it, would, it would mean that it was coming from the heart. Interesting. Yeah, it would be more risky for them to say something. And so it'd be, tend to want to believe them because you'd be like, man, that's got to be crazy for you to say something like that, maybe. And one other. Yeah. I think it's cool to think, and I guess the answer that they were there with him, like in his final moments like that. So they were there. Again, they were there. You guys were there. I'm here for you. They were there. I don't know if we know, you know, what answer is right or wrong, if they're all right or wrong. But my theory is that they were important to him. Which is a revolutionary concept in Jesus' day. I mean, he elevated the women in that society when they weren't elevated. And think about how important they were. He drove seven demons. We talked about this before. These three women, it was a wild woman, there was the, the helicopter mom, the tiger mom, and there was the wallflower. But these women were with him for months, maybe even years. 
And they were there from through, through thick and thin. They traveled with him wherever he went. They, they waited on him. They served him. Some of them supported him even financially. They were incredibly loyal. They were incredibly faithful. They were incredibly courageous. On and on it goes. They were important to him. I can't imagine where I'd be without the women who are important to me in my life. I mean, think of me without Lynette. Please don't say that out loud. Think of you without the woman of significance in your life. I want to do something just for fun. I'm going to ask all the men to stand up. I think we, for just one minute here, need to give the women of faith in our life a standing ovation and say thank you. So they finally all get back together for dinner. And Jesus appears to everyone. And what does he do when he appears at that dinner? He immediately rebukes them for not listening to the women. You've heard this phrase, seeing is believing. But in this case, believing is seeing. When my kids were young, I would pray, and I still do, that they would have their own relationship with Jesus. But you know, that is never going to happen unless they believe in Jesus. And that's not going to happen unless someone tells them about Jesus. You see, we've got we've to hear the story in order to believe the story. You know, our mission is love, to love God and to love others. But who here knows what our purpose is? As Christians, as Simi Church, what's our purpose? Seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost. Get to know God. Love one another. Love one another. Well, yes, mission love is our mission, our purpose. Yes. Be a good disciple. To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Spread the word of God. To spread the word of God. You know what our, our purpose is? And you've all, we've all sort of said it in different ways. Our mission is love. Love God, love others. But our purpose is to tell people about Jesus. That is our purpose. It's not about who won the game last night. It's not about what Trump tweeted yesterday. It's not about what, what, uh, where you're going to eat after church. It's about telling people about Jesus, are you about your purpose? Are you actively telling people in your life about Jesus? That's our purpose. That's what we've been called to do. That's the job he left us with. Yes, we love God. We love people. But our job, our purpose is to tell people about him. I want to encourage you to do something for me. I want you to make a list. I want you to make a list of people that you want to tell about Jesus. Write their names down. There's an old saying that if you don't write it down, it won't happen. Write their names down. And then begin praying for them. And then invest. Go out of your way to spend time with them so you have some credibility to tell them about Jesus. Our next series, when we, when we conclude this and we, we sort of reorganize ourselves, is going to be about mission love. It's going to be about this idea of going to the world that we live in, our own individual worlds, and telling people about Jesus. But it's going to start with making a list, praying every day, and investing, spending time with those people. Verse 15, he said to them, 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink, and when they drink deadly poison, because I guess that's what you do, it will not, they will, they will get well. After the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So as we are wrapping things up here, it's important when we read these verses to understand that whatever the case is, whatever the truth is, whether it's Mark, whether it's someone else, it is different from the rest of the book. Most of Mark is what's called a narrative. It's Mark telling us stories about the life of Jesus. But this seems to be more of a summary than a narrative. So it does feel different. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. That doesn't necessarily make it uh, untrustworthy or uninspired. It's just different. And so as we see here, Mark sort of, or whoever it is, sort of sums up the message for us. And he does kind of a mashup here. He sort of just takes a bunch of ideas and mashes them all together in one little quick summary. And maybe that's why it feels different. Maybe Mark got in a hurry. I don't know. Maybe well, We don't know what happened, but it just kind of did this mashup at the end. And he focuses on a couple of concluding thoughts. Go into the world. Now, when we say this phrase, go into the world, our tendency is to think, Okay, I gotta sell everything and go to India, or I gotta go to Zimbabwe or somewhere, right? We gotta, we gotta go somewhere. But that's not actually what he meant. What he meant was go to your world. Wherever you are is a mission field, and you are to go to that world, and the collective group of us going to our worlds is going to the world. You follow me? So it's not as hard as it sounds. It's not as dramatic. You don't have to leave one place to go to another to go into the world. When you walk out of these doors, you're going into the world. When you go to school in the morning, you're going into the world. When you go to work or you go to the bank or whatever it is, you're going into the world. That's your world. Go into the world. And then he says, preach the gospel. What does that mean? Does that mean that all of you need to do what I do and be, be, uh, uh, you know, train yourself and have some sort of skill? I'm not saying I'm great, but some sort of skill or training at this and, and stand in front of people and do sermons? Well, maybe, but no, what he really talking about there is tell your story. There's nothing more powerful than your story about Jesus. When you think about Jesus and the people he healed, he often said to them when they were like, let me go with you. He often said, no, go to your people and tell them what happened. And they had a tremendous impact on their communities just by telling their story, their story of faith. So go into your world and tell people your story. Do they know it? Do they know why you believe what you believe, how you came to faith? Tell them your story. It's powerful. And then he says, baptize those who believe and amazing things will happen along the way. You know, that is true. I was baptized in 1991 and I have seen amazing things. My mom is baptized. My two sisters are baptized. My brother-in-law is baptized. It is amazing what God has done. And none of them, by the way, and no offense, got baptized early on. It took a long time, and I'm a little bitter. <laughs> this all happened in the last couple of years. Been a Christian 20-something years, and it wasn't until year 25 or 26 that they start finally listening to my story. And it is hurtful. <laughs> Tell your story. People will respond. They'll get baptized. Amazing things will happen. You know that in our fellowship, which started back in the late 70s, early 80s, we are now 661 churches in 144 different countries. That is amazing. That's not 
you know, huge churches everywhere. Some are very small. And that's even more amazing to me. But I've seen amazing things. I was there when the Russian mission team was sent out in 1991. I was there. I saw them go. I knew people on the mission team. This was before Russia fell. The communism was still there. They went. They went with the thought that they may never come back. They were all young Christians. Only one of them spoke Russian when they left. Horrible idea. <laughs> go. Preach. And baptize. And that's what they did. And we've heard stories ever since. And that is repeated all over in many different places. But why can't that be told here? We got to stop thinking we got to go there because we got to go here. We're here. We're the mission team. We need to see these these amazing things happen here. But they're not going to happen unless we open our mouths to our world and unless we tell our story and see them get baptized, and then we're going to tell stories. And over there in Russia, they're going to go, did you hear what happened and see me? That's how it should be. Amazing things have happened. I want to hear from you. What amazing things have happened in your Christian life? Yes. In 2017, I was able to go to Hungary for a missions trip. I'd never been out of California. My mom is a single mom, so I never thought I'd be able to travel. But I got to serve and give in the European churches, and it was amazing. And it's still amazing to this day. I'm very grateful for it. That's great. Yes? Um, My stepdad, Ken. Oh, sorry. It's okay. He was was a mother when I studied the Bible. My mom had to go up north on business, and he was there in the very beginning, and it took 25 years, but he got baptized two years ago. Yes, and he, Ken is a great man. Yeah, we love Ken. Ken is her, uh, just if you didn't hear, her stepdad, Ken, took 25 years, but he got baptized, uh, and, and she saw that happen. And by the way, he's on our financial committee, and he sort of is the godfather of it, so we love Ken. He's awesome. Yes. Yes. My daughter is a disciple, she's at Pepperdine, and I think, just, I think about, you know, her birthday was just on Friday, and so I've been going down memory lane, but I it just remember when I first held her praying for one day for her to become a disciple, and then the day she did, I just thought, man, this is, this is probably one of the most amazing things that has ever happened. But I also have two cousins on the East Coast that are disciples, and they've been baptizing family that um, it's like my second cousin. But I just remember when I first became a disciple, also in 91, mm-hmm. um, reaching out to my family, and they're all you know just very um, reserved about different racial religions or being involved in different races for religion. And it's just amazing watching that very slow trickle of family Amen. becoming a disciple. So, That's great. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know if anybody know me. My son got to work with me for, well, had to work for me for a few years. But he left, he went to Vegas, and now he's in the Vegas church. And that was a great opportunity for him to go there and be with their fellowship. And I just felt incredibly grateful that he fell into their fellowship with, with brothers and sisters. He's being discipled by the elders there with his girlfriend. And But I deeply missed him. Mm-hmm. Well, now I've got a new son, Paul. Yes. <laughs> which is got him at Walmart. his roommate. And he, <laughs> just like me when I was 18, didn't know what I wanted to do in life. So he's like, my son told him, hey, call my dad. So he called me and he said, hey, would it even be a thought in your mind to come and have me come out and work for you? And I said, yeah, it'd actually be a thought in my mind. Why don't we try it out? So he's here for two weeks. All right. Me and I don't know if he could stand me or not. Yes. I love that about the kingdom of God, that we have a home in Russia yeah. with fellowship in the, yeah. in the Philippines, down in Costa Rica. Yeah. You want to go somewhere and you have a dream. We have brothers and sisters all over the world. Amen. And I love that. Yes. Rita. Thank you. Going along the same lines as Eugene, I'm sorry. It's okay. We want this to be emotional. This is great. And my daughter is amazing. Yes. She became a disciple a couple years ago, and she's always had a wisdom beyond her years. And 
it's just been such a joy to share my home with her, and I love her so much. And she's leaving TC Riverside. Mm -hmm. So God is so awesome because Rachel is like her twin. Mm -hmm. and, and Rachel um, is now coming to church, mm -hmm. and I just feel so grateful because Rachel is the sweetest person. Wow. She's so much like Olivia in so many ways. She's just light. Like whenever you talk to her, you just feel lifted up mm -hmm. and encouraged. And then I feel really bad, but. Okay, Matthew has a big sister like that he loves now. Uh, Rachel right. um, has been adopted into our family. She like loves all the things he yes. loves, and it's like it's like God just provides us. Something. That's awesome. Of course, we're gonna miss Olivia. Yes, um, yes, of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yes. Go ahead. And um, every year I go on a date with God and I send a gold balloon to him and I sneak impossible prayers in the balloon. Nice. And it's just my way of like sending stuff to God. Well, I asked for like impossible prayers. And the first time I did this, um, I sent a request to God for my brother to become a disciple. And less than a year later, um, that's awesome. Tremendous. Tremendous. Masood. You know, I just kind of suggested maybe we buffer some. You know, five years ago we had a midweek, and you asked that everybody write an impossible uh -huh. prayer that you don't think can happen. And you know, that five years ago I wrote that. God made it happen that my wife stays, so we, we can't have a possibility that my wife doesn't have to work, so we can have to pull our, our kids. And you know what? I just realized that here, five years later, for the last three years, my wife hasn't been working. She's been at home. Isn't that great? But at the time, I thought, oh, yeah, let me pray about it. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Because when we, I, I said a prayer, God, please send somebody into my life so that I can know your word. Because I want to follow you, I just don't know how. And what was amazing is that, you know, he orchestrated it. I didn't see it at the time, but looking back, then it becomes amazing. Yes. Looking forward, it doesn't always seem that way. But looking back and being amazed at the things that he has done in our lives. Amen. That's great. Yes, Joe. I just remember it was only a few years ago, maybe two years ago or slightly more, where we were in the valley and some of us were in shoreline, some of us in the valley, talking about, well, let's have more of an established presence uh, again or, you know, brand new in these areas here yeah. in, you know, seeming more park thousand oaks. And where it started just as an idea and then really took off and you see now and how that's affected all of us and a lot of our new relationships mm -hmm. and new friendships and, and things all around that. So, and what seemed uh, not impossible, but seemed new and challenging. Like, are you sure you want to do this show? We've got, <laughs> got it made over here. Right. It's like, oh, there's so many of us in Sydney. Let's start something big. And that became kind of a mission team right here, like you're talking mm -hmm. about now, right in our own nation. Amen. Yeah. Here we are. It's great. John. I was able to uh, spread the Bible and baptize my best friend. Amen. Wow. Sorry, but that got me. Great. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Amber. Not been baptized, 
baptized and in this exact church, I would have just stopped and just hmm. had babies instead of really being faithful. And I have to remind myself that because she's so obsessed. But <laughs> I'm so grateful because I I know I know God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Tom. Uh, I just think back to when um, God reached out to me through disciples and um, I was addicted to Oxycontin. I started going to living on a, a living on house arrest and, um, you know, I just felt like the disciples were just really challenging to change my life and, you know, just so many of my friends who just continued down that path and few of them are you know, no longer here, or just have just continued to make a mess of their life, and just make me think of how amazing God is. That you know, reading that scripture about you know those who whose life will gain a life, mm-hmm. and how much I gain, mm-hmm. um, it's just it's just really amazing. I don't think there was any other way that it would happen. Mm. That's awesome, Tony. So uh, I got baptized twelve years ago, and I was in Camarillo. I got on the couch in this house that was just like full of drugs and. I just remember inviting my roommates to my baptism, and one of the guys, who was one of my best friends, he actually came. The other ones were like, oh yeah, he won't make it. And uh, this guy came, and uh, a couple years later, you know, we we're studying the Bible with him, and he kind of just fell off the map and moved back to Torrance to live with his parents. And uh, one day I get a call, and this guy uh, is telling me, like, hey, do you know this guy? You know, he, wants, he, he knows you, and he wants to get baptized. And I'm like, what? He was part of our church. Coastal, and uh, I guess his parents were disciples down there. Wow. And they brought him to church, and he was just like, These songs look like the same. <laughs> <laughs> same, same, same people. And he realized it was the same church. And Amazing. That's awesome. Wow, that's great. So, one more, Peter. Uh, I, I'd probably speak for quite a few people here, but um, when I look back the last 20 years, what I was doing, I should probably be either. Uh, dad or in jail. Right. Yeah. So when I, when I, I have been in a very, very real sense, feel saved by God. Mm-hmm. I think that my life, because of my horrible, family and career, kids, my health, that's all absolutely God. Amazing. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. We're glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to what I shared already, both my, my sons have been baptized, my youngest daughter's studying the Bible. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. And sometimes we can forget that it's go, preach, baptize, and amazing things are going to happen. And, and there's times when we just got to stop and recognize the glory of God and the amazing things that He does in our life. And again, that's sort of what today's about. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but it's sort of what today's about. Thank you for everyone who shared because it's really changing. It's, it, it's opening our eyes up and it's creating the mood, the, the moment that we want to experience this morning. Now, as I said, these verses 9 through 20 are a bit controversial. We've kind of cleared that up, I think, for the most part. But within that controversy, there's another controversy. And it's verses 16 through 18. For some reason, those verses are even more controversial. Now, in the first controversy has to do with baptism. And that line, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And the controversy is, what does that say about baptism? Is baptism part of being saved? Is it part of the process? And the argument is, Well, he says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but on the second half, he only says whoever does not believe. So they make this argument, well, then then baptism is not necessarily, uh, is not essential. It's really about faith, about the believing. Now, it just seems strange to me that that's a controversial conversation. But I do want to examine that sentence for a minute and just hopefully bring some logic to the conversation. And I'm not saying I'm smarter than everyone else. This is just things I've figured out, I've learned, I've heard from others. Uh, and, and there's lots of opinions on this. But somehow scholars get hung up on the fact that baptism is not mentioned twice. And it seems unusual to me because that feels like a, a distinction without a difference. You understand what I mean by that? They're making a distinction that makes no difference. Do I believe... Belief is essential without a doubt, a thousand percent. Belief is essential. 
but it does seem to me that baptism is part of it, that it's, it's just as essential. It's included in the formula, so to speak. What I find interesting is I also believe repentance is essential. Who here thinks that you're going to be saved by believing in Jesus and continuing to live in a house full of drugs like Tony? You know, living that life, I should say. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> but is repentance mentioned? What about prayer? Who here doesn't believe that part of the, the saved process, being saved and living saved, includes prayer? Who here would say, I'm going to go to heaven and I've never prayed? <laughs> Jesus himself in one of his parables said, when I return, will I find people praying? It's not mentioned there, but it's essential. What about what Mark just said? Go into the world and preach. Who here is going to say, I'm going to heaven and I never once told anybody about Jesus? So is it all that significant that the word baptize is not mentioned on both sides of that statement? I don't think so. I think that's over-reading it. I think we're, we're, they're, they're looking too closely. That's getting into the weeds. Let me tell you an analogy that I came up with. My wife helped me with this analogy. It's like I said, where would I be without her? But we needed, I needed her help. So imagine if before I left town, I told my kids, whoever obeys and cleans the house, I will pay $100. But if you don't obey, you will get nothing. Does that mean that they can skip cleaning the house and still get the $100? No. And no, as a dad, no. You're not getting the $100. And I think that's a little bit what God is saying. Like, no. Does he need to say baptism again? No. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? So go preach, baptize, and amazing things will happen. There's a second controversy in this section. And it has to do with these miracles. Driving out demons, speaking in tongues, picking up snakes with their hands, and assuming we drink that deadly poison. I, still, I guess that's just something they did. Uh, it will not hurt them. Place their hands on sick people, they get well. The question about this is, are these verses, and I want you to hear this phrase, are they demonstrative? No, wait, what's, that's the wrong word. Let me look. Yeah, are they descriptive or are they proscriptive? Do you know what the difference is? Descriptive is like this. Things, amazing things will happen like this. Proscriptive is these things have to happen in every believer's life. In other words, let's get the poison out and start drinking. And that's how we find out who's saved and who's not. <laughs> let's not. <laughs> let's not do that. Masood, you have a comment. You know what? I actually got into the very people about this. If you are a Christian, then you drink the poison. The fact that you're not drinking, that you're not a Christian. You know, if you read in the life story of Paul, he eventually, one of the, and he gets really ship, uh, shipwrecked, and he gets to that island, he gets bitten by, by a snake, by a snake yeah. and he's fine. Totally, this is prophesying what happened to Paul. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that we should go test God, like when the Satan says, Thank you. God, you will be saved. Thank you. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm with you, Masood. This is not proscriptive. It's not like you have to do these things to be saved. Thank goodness. I mean, people in Hawaii and Alaska would have no hope because there's no poisonous snakes there. So I guess they're not going to heaven. They can't get bit by a snake. These are descriptive. He's just saying amazing things will happen. And some of these things, maybe all of them actually did happen at some point in some miraculous way. But please, please do not drink poison. Do not grab a poisonous snake. Don't do things that might get you killed because this is descriptive. It's not proscriptive. You know, it's so funny to me, but only a scholar 
can confuse these things. Only someone who takes so much time to get into the weeds that they just get lost in the weeds. One of my favorite things about reading Mark was just that we backed up and read the story. And there's just times you go, it's obvious. Oh, after I read the story, I get it. But we can get in and we can break every word down and we can study every little thing and then we get lost. We're, we're, we're too deep into the forest. You got to back out. You got to pay attention. So Mark is not telling us that you have to do these things. He's just saying amazing things will happen. So here's the point. Go, preach, and baptize. And amazing things will happen. So we're, we're ending our, our time this morning. Is this passage all that controversial? Well, there's some questions. Does that really matter? I mean, is it, is it telling us anything the Bible doesn't already tell us? No. Is this passage inspired? Yeah, I think it is. Who wrote it? What's the circumstances? How did it come to be? I don't know. But boy, it sure feels like God talking to me. And if it feels like God talking to you, and it doesn't contradict anything else in the Bible, you can probably safely assume that it is inspired. We're going to close out, and we're going to take communion together. Communion is a time to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This time you're going to stay in your seats. We have ushers. They're going to pass the trays. We'll have some music. You'll have a time to, to meditate and, and pray to God. But this is our time to do that, to reflect and meditate on the life of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us, and our relationship with him. And I want to encourage you to do that at this time. Afterwards, we'll take up our collection. We'll have some announcements. And then I'm going to explain what I said we would talk about later. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time to be together. Thank you for the incredible power of your word and how inspiring it really is. Even when there's controversy, it still is inspiring. It still comes through. Help us to remember Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.